From the studios of 2SER in Sydney, Australia to the world, this is a Gay Waves podcast, proudly produced on Gadigal Land. All right. My guest today is the star of TV, screen, stage, and has been the undisputed god of Australian cabaret for over three decades. It's Paul Capsis. Welcome, Paul, to Gay Waves. Hi, Mark. Hey, um, look, thank you for taking time out from your rehearsal schedule. Um, we'll be talking about the play that you'll be doing very shortly in Sydney very soon. But I want to take you back to start with. You're born and raised in Sydney, um, yes. in Surrey Hills. And you were, uh, now I believe it was your grandmother that brought you up um, in Surrey Hills. Would that be correct? Yes, with my, my mother, my mother and my Maltese grandmother and grandfather, uh, in Surrey Hills, yeah. Before Surrey Hills was, uh, how should I put it, glamorous as it is now. Um, it was rough in those days. I do remember back in the day. I mean, I grew up in Gosford, so a little bit up the coast, but yes. Um, now, you actually wrote uh, a Helpman award-winning play about those times, Angela's Kitchen. Um, it sounds like your grandmother was a huge influence on your life. Can you describe what influence she did have? Well, the thing about my grandmother, Angela, was her total unconditional love, which I've never experienced that again since she's passed. Uh, it's an incredible thing when somebody can love that much and she taught me so much about, I mean, pretty much I would say the person I am now, a lot of that has to do with her and my mother, obviously, and to a smaller degree, my father, much smaller degree. But my grandmother taught me about the work ethic is one of the strongest parts of her that she taught me was her dedication to work and uh, the commitment of a job, which is something I carried into uh, my life as a performer. Look, this may even relate back to your grandmother. Um, you love, I think you love, but strong female role models, like all the satrushes that you've um, impersonated over the years. Um, is that true? Is that like you did have a love for a strong woman? And um, what's your favourite chanteuse to um, impersonate? Well, most definitely from my earliest memory, the people that inspired me always were, were women and strong women. I, I would say must, you know, it had to have been my grandmother first because she was incredibly strong. You know, she wasn't a victim at all. And she lived through terrible things. She lived through, you know, the depression when she was a child and then the second world war after she was married and started having a family. And my mother was born in Malta during an air raid. So she's probably my first. And then there'd be, after that, my mother, my own mother, and my, you know, some of my uh, aunties and uh, cousins, also strong females in my family. And even my Greek grandmother on the other side, you know, uh, it's just they have, for me, it was a, a memory is that they have their own agency, even though they came from those really kind of restricted, traditional, Greek Maltese uh, 
structures in family, patriarchy, I guess. But in Maltese, it's more matriarchal. And then I, and when I became a teenager, in my mid-early teens, I started having an obsession with particularly strong women, like tough women, you know. So all my, my idols were either men who wore lots of makeup and feathers or women who wore leather and, you know, someone like Janis Joplin or Patti Smith, you know, they were... Um, you know, early, like, music uh, role models, if you like. And that question of who's my favourite chanteuse, it's a very difficult question, but I'd have to say, I mean, you know, there's so many uh, that I absolutely, you know, my earliest, also Tina Turner. So Tina Turner, when she was with Ike and Tina Turner and the Ikeettes, was her raunch, which is also a toughness, like her physical physical energy on when she sang Tina's voice uh, and also her dancing and her moving. And uh, of course we found out later she was being abused, unfortunately by Ike Turner. Uh, we, I just, yeah, always liked women who were, I don't know, they're just strong, you know, and they're uh, defiant. And I somehow related to that as a homosexual feminine child. Because I think I, I was very feminine and I know that when I was a, a, a very young, the worst thing about me that other children would say was that I sounded like a female. That was, the, that was my crime and I did not know what they were talking about and I had, I mean, I didn't know there was a difference but then also I did think I was female. I identified as female as a child. I, I thought I was absolutely female. And I acknowledge now that I have a very strong female energy quality. I would say my brain is female. You know, I think that's probably why I related to my Maltese grandmother so much. But also her independence, her fierceness, you know. She wasn't a victim. She would never, if my grandfather, you know, yelled at her for something, she, she would give it back. You know, and I witnessed that, you know, and also she was, um, yeah, she made her own decisions. She made her, she kept her own money. She worked, um, paid the bills, you know, raised the family. And look, I mean, you've done everything in this business. Um, how did you get your break in into the showbiz business? Because you've really made a huge career over the last 30 years. Well, it's actually 40, Ma. 40, wow. This year, in fact, is my 40th anniversary. I started in earnest in 1983. That was when I went right. Um, and I joined Shopfront Theatre for Young People. I mean, I didn't earn money as a performer until, well, I was actually right. It is 30, I mean, 30 years uh, as an equity member because the first job I got, I, I became a union member as soon as I could because I wanted those protections. I also was serious about being in the business and wanting to um, find out what it is to be a performer like those women and those performers that I worshipped. Because I did, I worshipped them. I thought about them day and night, read everything I could, was obsessively collecting photos and records. And um, so it is definitely, I would say it was a 10-year excruciating slow burn that's learning 
not uh, not trained as a performer, but learning through community theatre, and then and also amateur musical society shows and fringe theatre. So I include all that in the ten years. I mean, I was doing everything from Shakespeare to Samuel Beckett to making plays ourselves. Kick House Theatre. We did most. We mostly focused on uh, Australian writing, and also Lorca, Federico García Lorca, who's one of my favourite playwrights. And then also he happened to be a homosexual who was murdered. Uh, so, you know, and it was later for me that I got more into my gay heroes, my homosexual heroes, people like Quentin Crisp and Oscar Wilde and Christopher Isherwood and, you know, Augustus Burroughs and all these wonderful writers, people mostly from literature and people like, you know, Francis Bacon. Uh, and Andy Warhol to a degree, you know, so it's interesting that, um, you know, as you get older, things change, but my obsessions are still with the same people. I'm still obsessed with Janis Joplin and Tina Turner and Patti Smith and Nina Simone and Billie Holiday, Bessie Smith, Dinah Washington. I could, the list goes on and on. Edith Piaf, Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli, Bette Midler. Yep. They're all there. And, <laughs> And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, were you were you always open about your sexuality when you were working? And because I, I would see you as one of the first gay icons that I can remember, uh, being wow. in the Australian media landscape. Just for example, I mean, you've done so many TV and film and stage. Head On was one of my favourite films, and you were amazing in that. You, Thank so, do you feel like, um, was there any pressure about being gay and being in the business? Oh, my gosh, yes. Mm. Um, head On changed my life. But by the time I got to Head On, I worked a lot in terms of I was working on, by that time I'd been working on the strip, Oxford Street, as a initially as a drag queen. And, uh, I'd, you know, because my background was theatre, musical theatre and theatre, and when I emerged... It really happened out of a desperation to try and become a professional because that's when I found the doors firmly shut in my face was my obvious homosexuality and my obvious femininity. I never, I've never been in the closet because before I even understood what a homosexual is or to use the terms, the thing I was always called back then was pufta which was a word I couldn't even say that. I couldn't even say that word. But now I say it and I embrace it as we have done through the last however many decades now, owning those words. I think that's a very powerful thing, actually. So, so for me, it wasn't a choice. The one thing that I did not know how to do was to hide myself. I had no ability to do this. I had no way of knowing how to uh, to make myself be left alone that I always I always got this attention from people it was and it was always negative so that that you know that was a mystery to me I mean I remember staring in the mirror when I was a child for hours in my grandmother's mirror because she had a big mirror in her bedroom with a dresser and I'd literally stare at myself looking for the thing they all saw 
that brought such ire to, towards me, my person. And I, I wasn't that person. I mean, I was a very naive. I loved playing and singing. And I thought the world was an Elvis Presley movie where everyone just broke out singing and dancing in the streets and Fleming Shopping Centre, you know. I just, that's how I grew up. So when I went to school, it was this harsh, negative thing that I drew. And it was really full on. And it was, like I said, when I was growing up in Surrey Hills, it was multicultural. It was working class. It was rough as guts, you know, and the schools were just down the road from where I lived. My family weren't going to send me to a private school. They couldn't afford it. So, and I don't even know if that would have made any difference. So yes, the thing about myself, I mean, I remember a quote from Katie Lang and she said, you know, she never had that choice of coming out. She was always out because just because of her physicality, her voice, her presence, her, you know, and yeah, it got me into a lot of trouble, I, I think. And in the industry, the same. But by the time I got to the industry, I, 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 I was, I had an idea of this issue. I had an idea of how I was perceived by that time. And one thing I was never going to do was pretend I wasn't, that wasn't an, an, ever an option for me or an interest. And I just thought all my heroes have been themselves despite everything. They don't, they never changed themselves. Janis Joplin, Patti Smith, they don't change, they don't change themselves. If anything, they were more themselves. And then as they make your, as you make your way into the world as an artist, then you, you don't even, I wasn't conscious of it at the time. All I knew was I felt a real, I guess a despair, what the truth is or was of the industry. But one thing I'm glad is that I didn't stop i didn't go oh well i better go and open a fruit shop or clean toilets or you know whatever mm. you know in my family the things we knew physically what you do drive a truck work in a factory all that you know it's just what my family which is what i come from i come from hard physical labor and that's what i saw i witnessed my grandmother every day physically committing herself if it wasn't to her home or cooking, cleaning, washing, then she had a job and I would go with her to her job. And also I would watch her do her job, which was a cleaning job. Um, so um, academia for me wasn't uh, something that I knew anything about. So when I say those 10 years as a performer, that was my training. But then also part of that training was realizing, and I would have people say to me, look me in the eye and say, you're never going to be a performer because you're gay. You're obviously gay. You're effeminate, worst crime. You're a wog. So you're not going to work. You're not, what are you going to, you know, you might get, maybe be an extra. But that back then it was the truth. That's how it was. You know, and I'm seeing all these TV shows now, you know, retrospectively portraying the 80s in the gay world. And I'm like, or TV shows, you know, that's set in a TV studio. I'm like, no, it was never like that. They do get the homophobia right and they do get the misogyny right. Those things were there most definitely. 
but there's other stuff they portray and I was like, no, but you know. Yeah, and I think that's what was about Head On that struck me at the time. It was very real and um, it was portraying real characters like yourself. You know? Well, that was Anna Kokinos's, uh mm. that was her thing as the director. She was fully uh, acutely aware and, you know, this is 1997 when we filmed it, about how ethnic Australians were viewed and also she was adamant that everyone that were cast had to be the real thing, which is what people do now. So Anna was way ahead of everybody. Yeah, exactly. But it wasn't the norm and it didn't, we didn't protest, we didn't take to the streets, we didn't cancel people, we didn't come after people because it was a different world. But what we did, we worked. We worked. We made our work regardless against the odds. Anna made that film thanks to Christos Solkis's incredible book, Loaded, which was the inspiration, which I read and it blew my brains because I could relate to every character in that book. I related to Ari. I related to Johnny, obviously Johnny Tula, because by that stage I had worked on the gay strip as a drag queen. Mm. Although I didn't live my life as a woman when I wasn't performing. I always performed as a female, yeah. but I always performed as a female. I, I wasn't, um, obviously I did drag, mm. but in my mind, this, these females had to be truth, truthful for me, you know, which, you know, I, I mean, I still get misgendered often, even in my old age. I'm people, you know, in the men's, in, you know, Westfield shopping when they use the facilities and they, they go like that when they see me. <laughs> Some old Greek ladies strolled in and hanging out at the urinal. Well, yeah. they may hang out at the urinal. But I, you know, so I shock people and frighten them in airports. So yeah, it's still a thing. But now I'm just like, hmm, so what? Who cares? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not interested. Yeah, I have to admit, I can't. I wouldn't know how that feels because I've never been misgendered. But it, I have had friends who have been misgendered in the past, and it's a bit of a, a shock when it happens when you're around, and I'm, we're thinking, well, how did someone get that so wrong? And it's like, hmm. Anyway, I think I'll... people don't really look at you. They kind of glaze. Hmm. There's a glaze. I mean, often when I'm with my female friends, we're called ladies. They're not looking, you know, and I look at, I mean, look at me for God's sake. I mean, you know, I mean, but if you look close, the horrors are, are evident. Because I had a guy, a man working at the Westfield, madam, he was yelling down the corridor and I was, I had my hair in a bun. I mean, I look, I must have looked like a little old Greek lady shopping. And he saw me going, madam, he's screaming. I'm like, what the hell? I turned around and he went, <gasps> and I just said, it's fine. Don't worry. It happens all the time. Yeah. Um, I do want to just quickly touch on your heart, th that work ethic that your grandmother gave you and your love of singing and dancing. Obviously, the your cabaret career you've just done so many shows and self-written shows as well. And is that a, was that also a product of like not having the work in the, in the industry and going out and doing it yourself? 100%. That only happened out of frustration. Mm. Had I been embraced, had I been accepted as an actor, 
I probably never would have gone into the world of making my own shows. I did that because I wanted to work. I wanted to be a performer. And then very fortunately, not long after, I started to very slowly meet people who were young like myself, but they were writers, they were directors, they were theatre company producers, and we were all struggling. We were all trying to be, and thankfully there were spaces that we could work and that's how it happened. And I think that's how it happens. I still think that's how it happens. Yeah. And I, you know, obviously your talent shone through as well. Um, your amazing voice and the great performances that you give. Thank you. Talking about great performances, you are in rehearsals at the moment for an amazing play, um, La Caja Fall, and you're playing the wonderful character of Alban. And you've got uh, Michael McCormick playing Jaws, and I, I can't wait to see it. I've got tickets. I'm going to come and see it. Um, I can't wait. At the State Theatre. Theatre, yes. Um, how it's an iconic role, and you get to sing that iconic song, I Am What I Am. Um, how do you feel about the role and what it means in this day and age? Because it's 50 years old now, the story. The original French uh, play was written 50 years ago. How do you think that, How do, in today's day and age, how does will that come across and how do you feel about the role? It's a massive role. It's a huge night in the theatre. It's a big scene. There's the comedy, there's the physical comedy and the physicality of it, the dancing, the quick changes, the wigs, the dresses. And these are all <laughs> exhausting things. But the role, I love Alban. I never in a million years ever thought I'd play him. Because, you know, going back to what we were talking about, these shows have been done professionally on stage, but I'm the last person they would ask to, to do them because... Most commercial producers in this country, they go for, you know, TV people, you know, people who are media trained and all of that. I'm not any of that. I'm a theatre person and that's really it. But, um, and, you know, obviously lucky to have done some film. But this wonderful producer, David Hawkins, this is the second time he's gifted me the great a great role. In fact, the first one, with him was uh, the MC in Cabaret. I think it was 2016, 17. But it, the greatest role of my career. I mean, for me personally, that role was the role for me. That was always the role. You know what I mean? I there's some, Well, there's something about that show. There's something about the story that I have always resonated with in terms of the world it's portraying, which is an interesting thing for me, which is the way art can bring together music, characters, and then the politics. So the politics of what was going on in Germany at that time and the build-up and the rise of the Nazis. Because mm. that's something I'm very aware of as a performer. I'm always, what's going on in the politics? What are people, how are people behaving? How are they, you know, talk, what is, well, how are they talking about us as artists, artists and homosexuals. And these are things I want to be aware of. I don't want to live in a cloud because 
I don't know. I think it's uh, good to know what's going on. Like in America at the moment, they're banning drag shows where kids can see them and things like that. And this wave of conservatism is coming back, mm. um, which really I think relates very well to Lakaja Vol. I mean, we're talking about a conservative politician coming into a situation where and ha- having to learn that people are people, you know, and I am what I am, you know, you are what you are. Such a powerful song. My favourite line in that is, I don't want praise and I don't want pity. Mm-hmm. Amen, sister. Because hell, I don't want no praise and I want no pity. But what I want is agency. Mm-hmm. And we all want agency. We all want to be able to speak. We all want to be able to be ourselves. I've all, I mean, I guess because of my life as a child and what I experienced I mean as much as they were attacking me or hitting me or whatever they were doing I would have my moments of thinking well maybe they are homosexual too because why would I make them angry why would I upset them so much what is it and what's wrong with being a female why is it uh, that I'm like a female that makes them angry? This I did not understand. But it gave me an insight into humanity, human behaviour. I never for one minute think or delude myself that just because things are nice in Surrey Hills or we have a lovely world pride and everything's shiny and a lot of colour and movement, that everything's all right in the world. I don't believe that for one second, especially not in Sydney, not in New South Wales and... There, let's be honest, there are places in the world, you know, we, it's still hard, it's still dodge. So it just means we have to keep our eyes open. We have to keep vigilant. We have to keep strong. And hopefully we have to stay connected and we have to stay united, which we are not. Let's be honest, that has also deteriorated over the years. Now there are more divisions, unfortunately, and we can't afford that. I think that's really dangerous for us, for us, because while if we are divided, when they come after us, what, then we unite? I guess we do. I don't know. I remember in the AIDS crisis Mm -hmm. how, you know, before the AIDS crisis, you know, there was a fight for women, lesbian, to have their own spaces and gay men wanted their own spaces and they wanted to be the separate thing because... You know, we're gay and we want to have our own thing and we're lesbian and we want to have our own space and all that was great. And I remember when the HIV AIDS crisis happened, the lesbians came to the fore for us and we were also more united because we were, back then it was still, you know, is she passing? Is she butch? Is she a bottom? Is she a femme? You know, there was all that. Mm-hmm. Most definitely, that's always been there, that division. But when it came to the crisis, we came together. We united. And to a degree, we united for our rights initially. You know, it's just that period between getting our rights and HIV AIDS. In fact, I don't think in New South Wales there wasn't a gap. It was like we uh, legalisation came in 1984 and so did HIV. Um, I remember because I, yeah. I just come, I had been out two years. And I remember going on marches. Yep. 
for our rights yes. down Oxford Street before Oxford Street got bright with the lights. Mm -hmm. It used to be dark when the shops closed and it was our street and there were our clubs and we used to walk with candles and we used to walk arm in arm for our rights. And I remember thinking, wow, what a great world. And now I can be myself. And then AIDS happened, yeah, which was the most devastating, terrible thing. Yeah, and know, which I'll never forget. Yeah, and let's hope it's that another crisis doesn't have to happen before we this tribalism stops and we can come together again. It's like um, I'm hoping, you know, because we are all one and we we're better as um, one than separate. Yeah, you know, there's space for everybody. Yeah, that's how I see it. But if I mean the industry, my industry, the theater industry, the musical theater industry, that's the same. They have the same mentality. And, and because we, uh, now it's not so good, but also because work now is difficult post-COVID. And, uh, but, you know, my mentality for myself when I started, even though everyone said, you can't, you can't, you can't because of this, this, this. I went, okay, you be you and I'll go over here and I'll do my thing over here, but I'll still be a performer, you know? Yeah. And then you realize, you know, when you, you asked that great question before, you know, I mean, when you come out or you're out, you do pay a price for that. And the price for that is the opportunities you get or rather that you don't get. And I've always understood when anyone is in the closet, I totally get it because the, di the biggest, most obvious difference is your paycheck because when you make it and you're this big thing and, and you know, maybe you're heterosexual and you're white Anglo-Celtic and all those fabulous things, you know, the difference of your career and your life is very different to someone who's obvious and out. So I'm not only obvious, I am actually <laughs> have said the words, I am a practicing homosexual because that's how it's got to be. And I don't want it to be any other way. I never have. I mean, I, you know, as I said to you, I didn't know how to pretend or hide it in high school. Mm -hmm. So I was a lamb for the slaughter. I remember years later, some some of the students, older students, I remember they're a bit older than me, and they'd say to me, oh, but you were so obvious. That's why they bashed you. And I went, hmm, yeah, oh, well. Yeah, what do you say to that? You know, it's like, it's yeah. And I mean, I think, things change very slowly um and i do think things have changed a little bit since then uh, i was i mean about the same age as you went through the same thing at high school um and i'm hoping today that today that things are better than they were. yes i think to a degree they are there's a more of awareness and we have more support in a in 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 a, in a part of our in the wider community mm. um mental health you know because the consequences of these things is mental health and what mental health, if we're not um, being mindful, can lead to dreadful, terrible, catastrophic things for everybody, not just yeah. for ourselves and our families, but for the community at large. Yeah. And also the thing is, but, but why? how on earth would any of this affect you unless they say, oh, it's because of my religion or, oh, 
And then I question their religion. I'm like, well, what's that religion then? What is that? That's no question that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Look, Paul, I could talk to you for hours, I'm sure. Ma. Definitely. <laughs> um, definitely could. Uh, I. It's just amazing. And look, I'm so looking forward to seeing you in La Cage of Uh It's on at the State Theatre from Wednesday, the 19th of April through to the to Sunday, the 23rd of April. Uh, go to lacage.com.au for your tickets. Get in now because it's going to sell out. Uh, it's only on for one week. So do yourself a favor. Short season. Yep. Short season. Yep. So Saturday night, fourth row, I'll be there. Um, <laughs> looking forward, so so looking forward to it. And the State Theatre, I mean. Oh, amazing. I mean, that's a dream. Mm. My favourite theatre in Australia. It's so beautiful, Why not? isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, thank you very much and thank Ma. you for talking to Gay Waves. Thank you. Thank you, Gay Waves. Love you. Hi, Mark Haddon here, producer of Gay Waves. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate the episode and subscribe to the channel. You can also get in touch with us. Our email address is gaywaves at 2ser.com. Find us on all social media channels. Just search Gay Waves. Thanks for listening.